This podcast is sponsored by GoGo, the leader in in-flight connectivity and wireless entertainment. GoGo's high-performance global solution, 2KU, delivers more bandwidth than ever, enabling a better experience for flyers, including streaming video. And now it's available on commercial flights. Learn more at gogoair.com forward slash airline. Once again, we're breaking from our usual Airline Weekly Lounge format and taking the show on the road, this time to Atlanta, where our own Seth Kaplan interviewed Delta's new CEO, Ed Bastian. Bastian, of course, has just taken over for the retiring Richard Anderson. They discussed why he doesn't think American can catch Delta in terms of operational performance. They discussed Delta's fleet philosophy, its network, its joint ventures around the world. They discussed online travel agencies, fuel hedging, and the SkyMiles program. And they discussed what some have called Delta's arrogance. Bastion, however, calls it a maverick style. And we even learned the real reason Korean Air and Delta haven't formed a joint venture. His response was something we've never heard before. The interview took place last week in the Delta Tech Ops engine shop. It's 30 revealing minutes with Delta's new CEO coming up right now on the Airline Weekly Lounge. Congratulations. Thank you, Seth. Good to be with you. So, uh, you know, taking over an airline that's doing rather well, I mean, on one hand, obviously a, a good thing. You wouldn't want to have it any other way. But on the other hand, uh, expectations uh, are, are rather high here. That puts right. a lot of pressure on you. Well, I, I, I think it's great because uh, you're, you're right. I would want it no other way. I love the fact that our expectations from our customers are rising. It keeps us sharp. It keeps us on our toes. Uh, I, I love the fact that our competitors talk about how Delta's doing and trying to beat us. I mean, that's great. I love. I, love, I think it, you know, good competition makes you better, and uh, I, I feel confident. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of uh, of your competitors, you know, the, you're doing, of course, well not just financially but also operationally, putting up numbers that uh, really the global airline industry has, has rarely seen from an, an airline of this size. Uh, a few months ago, I asked Doug Parker uh, on this podcast. Uh, I said. Can you catch Delta? And he said something that Americans been saying was, just, you know, hey, Delta had a five-year head start. You know, getting out of bankruptcy and, and merging. You know, we've been running two airlines. They say this whole time. He said, absolutely, we can catch them, and we will. Is there something special or structural about Delta that makes that impossible? Whether it's your mostly non-union workforce, uh, you know, whether it's oh that you know more of your network is concentrated at one hub, Atlanta, more out and back flying than other airlines, or something like that. Uh, or, or, or can American catch you if they work hard enough? Uh, I don't think they're going to catch us. <clears throat> I love the fact that they want to try. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons why we have the advantage, and I don't think it's a core structural benefit we own. Uh, I think it's the people. And you're sitting in the uh, engine shop here uh, at Delta uh, Tech Ops, and you look around, there does not exist this workforce or this team or this spirit where, you know, You've had 90 of the first 120 days where we've not had a single maintenance cancellation worldwide. That's unheard of territory. So if Americans are able to accomplish that, good for them. But by the time they get to 90, we'll be at 110, right? And so my goal is to keep that we'll always be five years ahead of them, and we're not going to stop what we're doing and wait for them to catch up. Yeah. 
You mentioned the fact that we're here in the engine shop. Uh, all of this, Delta Tech Ops, somewhat the product of something that is structurally different about Delta. The fact that, you know, as I mentioned a minute ago, your direct relationship with, with employees, mostly non-union uh, workforce, the, the major exception being your, your pilots. Uh, can you give me an example of something that's possible at, at Delta that's not possible at American or United just because of the way the, the company's set up? Well, I, I don't want to speak for what's possible at American or United. I, I, I don't know. I don't work there. I've never, never, uh, never around there. But I can tell you what's different here at Delta, what's unique about Delta, is that the, uh, the, the, uh, the workforce really believes that we're all one team. You know, we're not, we don't have a third-party intermediary trying to, trying to negotiate uh, jobs or schedules or work. And, and it doesn't mean it, you know, we're soft by any means because we actually have to work even harder to, make, to maintain that because we, we, we are closer to our employees as a result of that. So one of the you know, last, you know, gosh, I probably in the last two months since I took on the new responsibilities, I've been over here probably at least five or six times just walking the floors saying hello to people, thanking them for what they're doing, and making certain everybody appreciates that, that, that we're one team. And when you have that as your culture, that one team culture and that spirit and that camaraderie, that, that's, that's hard to break. And I think it's hard to create. Uh, it's easy to lose, but it's harder to create. And that's, I think that's what they're going to be faced with if they're going to catch Delta. They need to create that same level of spirit and engagement and relationship that... Uh, and, you know, the second thing I tell people all the time is they don't have, you can replicate everything about an airline, but what you can't replicate are the people. And, you know, you just, we, we have 80,000 very special people. Looking at all these engines that surround us here uh, from Delta, but also from uh, airlines all around the world, how important is TechOps specifically to your fleet philosophy? I, I think everybody knows you, you, you you're happy to buy older planes, you're happy to hold on to your aircraft longer than, than a lot of your competitors. Does the maintenance structure really bleed over in a significant way into the fleet philosophy? Oh, well, it does. It does. We could not implement the used strategy and the, the, the capital-efficient acquisition approach we take towards uh, used aircraft if we didn't have the very best maintenance organization. And their ability to induct, their ability to maintain. Their, they, we run a very complex fleet. Uh, we do not have a simple fleet structure. We inherited a lot of different type of equipment from Northwest when we merged. And I think when we merged with Northwest, there was only one airplane that we had in common. That was the 757. So everything else was different. And when you get the best team of people making it work, and it gave it took us a couple of years to get our arms around it, but now we're humming like a you know, as I say, humming like that's never been done on this scale before. Yeah. I want to talk about your network a little bit. You know, for, for everything that's gone right for Delta over the past decade or so, uh, there's one part of the world, Asia, uh, that, that to some degree has, has been an exception. It, it's an important part of your network. And I think, right. you know, back with merger, a lot of people thought, well, that, you know, here you get Northwest strength there. You get right. the Tokyo hub. Um, but, you know, we think about all the things that, that you know, that haven't worked out. You uh, you know, you wanted to be involved in the SkyMark restructuring uh, most recently on the pond took that away. Um, you, uh, you know, you wanted Japan Airlines and SkyTeam perhaps in a joint venture. They stayed with One World and American. Uh, you, you know, rather clearly wanted something closer with Korean, who knows, a, a joint venture or something, something closer with Alaska. That, of course, didn't work out with them. Um, you know... Now we see you moving closer toward China Eastern, and I guess that could be the next big hope. 
but uh, it would rest partly on, or largely, on uh, the existence of U.S.-China open skies. Uh, how confident are you that, that that will happen at some point? And that if it does happen, uh, that you could move closer to China Eastern into perhaps a joint venture I, I I don't know what timeline or if it will ever happen. I, I think it will at some point, but it could take years, candidly. And if that happens, that will, to us, be just icing on the cake. You know, we, we, we don't need open skies to have a good cooperation agreement uh, with code share and, and sharing of traffic feed on either end of the uh, ocean. The, the Chinese airlines are you know, quite a few years behind the U.S. airlines with respect to what I was talking earlier this morning about the, the delivery aspect, the soft goods. They're buying all the hard goods, they're buying the latest technology, but the delivery aspects, and whether it's technology or maintenance efficiency or even air traffic congestion, there's a lot of work to be done over there. And so I think we have an opportunity to continue to get closer and closer, leveraging the skills that we have uh, for our joint benefit. Um, but I think you're right. I think over time, Shanghai and China is going to become the, the, the core market for, for a lot of Asian travel. Uh, we've been disappointed that we did not get the, uh, there, that in aid of day, daytime flying is being open piecemeal. Uh, we support it opening, but if you're going to open it, open it. Don't, don't open it on a piecemeal basis because uh, that's going to affect Narita in a, in a significant way. And, but, you know, we're, 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 we're out there fighting. You know, we're, 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 we're continuing to look for opportunity. Personally, I've, I've uh, owned the relationship with Kareem the last several years, and Chairman Cho and I, uh, I was just with him last month. I flew out to L.A. to see him for a day. I'm, I'm hopeful we'll be able to figure something out with Korean because we've got more, more to gain than to lose. Uh, you know, and the Korean situation is interesting. People don't appreciate why we are in the shape we are with Korean. Uh, you know, when we, uh, prior to the Northwest merger, Korean was Delta's Asian network. I mean, we, you know, we, and they, they invested in, in uh, Delta and they invested in building that fee to the U.S. And we got a, a very nice super commission and we're paid handsomely. And then all of a sudden we, uh, we do the deal with Northwest and we become competitors overnight and uh, haven't ever been able to, you know, kind of get the old, the old relationship back in a, in a better stead. Maybe with the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Narita change to Haneda, maybe that will be the catalyst for us to have a closer uh, closer partnership going forward. I sure hope so. That's interesting because I, I always just, my sense was always that it had more to do with, you know, that they wanted to, uh, you know, control their product and so forth and not having their customers flying other airlines. But but but, but the the merger was an important. The merger broke the, and then, and then clearly once they saw that we were, as they knew we were trying hard to get Japan Airlines, had we secured the relationship with Japan Airlines, I'm not sure we'd even be partners. That might have forced us to break the Korean relationship entirely because they would be, be direct competitors at that point. So, I, you know, I'm still optimistic on Asia. Uh, Asia, while it was one of the crown jewels of the merger, in the nine, nine of the ten years prior to us merging, Northwest was only profitable, or excuse me, made money, made money only one of the ten years prior. So it never... It never really was a great source of profitability. It was for Delta for several years with the yen at 80. Uh, really helps. The yen being anywhere north of 100 gets gets more difficult. Yeah. Uh, in terms of a more imminent joint venture, one that uh, pending regulatory approval will happen, um, Aeromexico. Yep. Uh, 
is that joint venture going to look a lot like the other Delta joint ventures uh, in terms of specifically uh, revenue and cost sharing? Somewhere, something where you're rather unique in the world. You know, American United, when they set up joint ventures, they share revenues, not costs. Uh, you share costs too. Are you going to be doing that with, with Airbus? Yes, we are. Uh, it's going to be modeled after the Virgin Atlantic JV, where we have a full P&L that we share the, uh, share the, uh, the bottom line results. We've already gone through and done all the benchmarking and baselines and make certain that we understand the cost structure on both sides to, to calibrate uh, so that we're starting the JV uh, in a fair way with both. And that, so we've, we really, the, and the purpose for that joint sharing is that we want, we want both parties incented to have each other succeed and to grow their, their bottom line as, as best we can because we get our share of that growth, they get our share of the, of the growth as compared to a revenue share, which 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 has a lot more competitive aspects to it. So, so we've uh, I think we've been pretty successful at implementing not just at AFKL but also with Virgin that model, and we're going to use that same approach with Air Mexico. Yeah, I, I guess one downside of, of sharing cost uh, is that on, well, on one hand, what you said is true. You know, just everybody has more skin in the game. Um, you really have to get it right in terms of not setting up perverse incentives where people can dump their costs on everybody. You know, put the yeah, put my least efficient aircraft into the joint venture right. and keep my most you know efficient aircraft out of it and so yeah. forth. No, we, we neutralize for that. That's we spend a lot of time on the baseline in the in the in the year leading up to making certain that we neutralize for all those factors. And so any aircraft decisions we take post that are made as a team, not as an and we can and, and I, I think both both parties appreciate the fact that we're trying to make certain each is as successful as possible and that we are as metal agnostic. As uh, as we can be, yeah. and, and of course your 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 first and, and still largest joint venture is the one with uh, Air France KLM dates, of course, back oh two and a half decades to what Northwest first had with with KLM. Uh, Air France KLM, well, particularly on the Air France side, obviously they have uh, their own issues, their you know financial pressures, their labor issues. How how much does that impact the joint venture? You know when you're wondering whether there's going to be a pilot strike at Air France and that sort of thing. It, it does. When, when you know, we have a strike, it's not good for our JV. Um, and we provide whatever support we can to Air France to help them through some tough spots. So when they do have the, they did have a strike like they had two years ago, uh, we did a lot more of the flying to be able to cover cover them. But it's a, uh, you know, we're, the uh, financial concerns and issues at Air France is having has actually made the JV that much more important to them in terms of making certain that they they preserve their their candidly the best profits pool and and invest in the best profit pool and have a good relationship with their partner in their best profit uh, profitable market and so I, I you know in a, a strange sort of way it's actually enhanced the level of collaboration because this is the part of the business that's working and while they've got a lot of distractions in areas they're trying, whether it's the intra-hub flying in Europe or what the Gulf carriers have done to their Asian and African franchises, this is the place they're putting a larger amount of investment against for that reason. Yeah. Alitalia, of course, <laughs> a member of that JV2, um, they uh, now heavily influenced by Etihad, a major shareholder recapitalizing the company. Have they become any less important to the JV? Has the relationship with them changed at all? No, no. They, uh, the relationship is still important. Uh, they're the smaller partner of the, of the group. Uh, we've met with Etihad. We, we understand what their strategy is. Um, again, Alitalia is not profitable today. Again, one of the sources of their current 
level of profits, though, is, is the transatlantic JV. And the last thing in the world they want to do is, is start to endanger the, one of the profit streams they do have. So, uh, so we've, we've got a very good relationship with uh, Alitalia. And candidly, somebody had to invest in them. Uh, they were, they were in, a, in financial duress. We didn't want to see them go away. We didn't want to see them getting taken over and pulled out uh, from the JV. So we, we've worked, uh, despite our differences on the Middle East subsidies, we've, we've worked this one pretty well. Yeah. Talk for a minute about Brazil, another place where, of course, you own part of an airline goal there, uh, an important Delta partner, but one that, uh, along with the country, uh, with the political problems and, and, of course, the economic problems, um, has, has its own uh, issues. I don't know if they're quite existential, but, you know, it, it's an airline in trouble. Um, are you optimistic that the worst might be over there, you know, in the context of, of unit revenue declines that the world has, has rarely seen in, in such an important market so quickly? I, I hope so. I, I, I don't know. It, it really it depends on what's happening to the currency. Uh, that's been a big factor. Currency has improved in the last few months. I think the political environment is going to impact the uh, not just the currency, but also the, the economy there locally. And uh, hopefully the political, uh, we've seen the worst of the, some of the political fallout. So we'll see. I, I know there's uh, the potential for a new president to take over, uh, maybe soon. And uh, I think that can only be goodness. I want to talk for a minute about your relationships with uh, the global distribution systems and also the online travel agencies. The GDS is Sabre, Amadeus Travel Port, uh, OTAs like Expedia. Um, you know, the industry's gone through a lot in the past uh, couple decades. Airlines really worked hard first to uh, bring down the costs of third-party distribution and, and then to just be able to sort of distribute more more dynamically, uh, merchandise more of, you know, your, your comfort plus seats and all that. Are you happy right now with those relationships, uh, you know, particularly now that even through Expedia you're able to sell a lot of things that you couldn't um, not long ago, or, or is there more that you'd like to see, whether in terms of just bringing down costs or more capabilities? I, I think the days of trying to reduce the cost structure of the OTAs is behind us. Uh, you know, the, the cost of, of us getting a, a ticket over an OTA versus Delta.com, is, is we're relatively neutral. They've... they've They've, they they match that. I think what we need to see from the GDSs, and I talked to Tom Klein, and we talked to the guys at Expedia and others, is we need to find ways that they can they can help us with our revenue premiums, uh, and not be, again, largely a producer of commodity-like behaviors. Now, I, I I said this morning that's been to me been the key of the Delta turnaround is that we have focused on being a premium airline. We are not a commodity, and any 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 part of the distribution system that's focused on being a commodity provider we're going to continue to reduce our reliance on and 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 avoid as best we can i think i think a lot of that is in terms of some of the some of the uh the otas were uh that were were really dilutive to our product and our brand that we've ended ended uh, relationships with that's helped a lot and now we've got to find a way for them to uh to be able to as we're building new product new pricing for seats and Segment, segmenting that versus the competition and making certain consumers know what they're buying when they're, they're getting a Delta seat on Expedia. That's where we're focused on trying to improve. I want to talk for a minute about fuel hedging. Uh, one area where you and, and Americans certainly have very, very different positions. Uh, you know, they don't hedge fuel at all. You bought an oil refinery. Um, 
back when that management team at the time running U.S. Airways in 2009 stopped hedging fuel, I mean, they just kind of threw their hands up after losing a lot on wrong-way hedges. Um, they said uh, that the um, that in good times when fuel was declining, uh, they would save all kinds of money by not, you know, having having hedged, uh, that when fuel was stable, they would save some money, um, and that when fuel was rising, they would maybe lose a lot of little money, but, you know, a whole lot less than all the other savings. I mean, they, they sort of described what did, in fact, end up happening. I mean, there's no question. You just add up the numbers. Um, they've sort of been right about that. Um, you now are, are less heavily hedged than you were uh, a year or so back. You spent a lot of money unwinding some of that. Is that Delta coming around to to what American believed. I mean, were they right, or or is there something more to it? Uh, it, it? It's worked for them, so kudos to them. That's not what we believe. We still look at this business as a, a highly volatile business with a lot of risk, and we're risk managers. You know, it's a part of our our job. A big part of our job is is managing and mitigating risk and preparing the company for unforeseen events and, and challenges. And I think one of the one of the things that's really been difficult for the industry to manage over time is what's going on in fuel. So we've we stopped hedging fuel about a year and a half ago when fuel prices were just too volatile to know. And when you have that level of volatility, the price you pay for protection wasn't wasn't worth the uh, the benefit it was providing because there was there was not a lot of confidence in the direction of, of fuel. When the market settles down a bit and maybe it's starting to reach a point of some equilibrium, maybe it's in that $50 price range that we'll see, who knows? But remember, this time last year, everybody was saying the same thing at 60, and then it wound up falling to 25. So I'm not sure it's going to stay here or it's going to fall. And in that kind of environment, we're, we're trying to avoid hedging. The thing, the, the, the thing I'd say, Seth, is that we, very different though from the past, is that we do have the balance sheet to sustain an oil hit much better than we had five years ago, six years ago, we're investment grade. Uh, so, so there's a level of self-insurance uh, that you can self-insure for in terms of risk around that that you don't have to buy. And when we do implement the next round of hedging, what I think we'll likely do is we'll probably be self-insured for a layer of risk and, and say that that cost is not worth it. We can sustain an up or down or take the benefit of movement within Pick a pick a ten dollar range either way, uh, but once it gets beyond that range, um, you know we 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 would be it'd be very hard for the industry capacity, pricing, and marketing to catch up with a pretty rapid run in fuel over a uh, over a certain price point, and and that to us is still worth hedging, and so it'll probably be a more efficient strategy, a cheaper strategy. We will not lose the kind of money we lost. I promise that. That uh, I'm, I'm lucky. I have my job after after uh, losing cumulatively four billion dollars in hedges over the last eight years. Uh, I've, I've said that to the board and many times that that I appreciate them not firing me over this. Uh, and of course, hedge, hedge losses you have to look at. Is it really a loss or just an opportunity cost? I, I, I tend to think of it as an opportunity cost because we always, with insurance, like most insurance, you buy. You don't really want to use it, but you want to buy it at a point where it's not it's not too expensive either. So that's how we're thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, more often than not over the past few years, it's been Delta announcing a new product or service and, and, and your competitors, American and United, matching that. 
One uh, exception to that is, is uh, American went out there with international premium economy. They, they announced several months back, and you've now announced that. Uh, did, did they catch you off guard on that and Delta scrambled to cut? To, to no, no, no. We've, we've, we decided a year ago that we were going to do this, and um, there was no point in announcing it because we um, were targeting the delivery of the 350. So, uh, no, we had, we had made our decision long before we were aware that they were even thinking about it. Uh, it's, it's an important product uh, attribute, we believe. We've seen it, yeah, the, 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 what it generates in uh, Virgin Atlantic. We see what it generates for Air France. Uh, we see some of the uh, Asian carriers, some of the benefit you can, you can, uh, you can derive with it. And it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a product that's been missing from the arsenal. So we're, we're, gonna, be, uh, we're gonna be delivering it next, uh, next year. Yeah. And just for, for listeners, the distinction there, this being the true premium economy with the wider seats and, and a very differentiated service as opposed to the Comfort Plus, the extra legroom pl- product, uh, which, which has some additional services too, but, but still the, uh, the same seats. Um, Sky Miles, uh, you know, obviously you, you've, you've made some changes there that, that uh, have ruffled some feathers among customers. Um, one thing that changed with loyalty programs over the past uh, decade or two is that whereas they started off as cost centers, you know, as a way to retain loyalty, they became profit centers in, in their own right uh, through, well, most prominently in your case, you know, the co-branded credit card with American Express. Um, what I'm wondering is whether when you make changes that might not make everybody happy, um, whether you have to take that into consideration that, yes, now you can sell a premium seat and take the money but, you know, is there somebody out there cutting up their credit card because they, oh, this, this program's not worth it anymore? No question about it. Our, our American Express relationship is worth to Delta $2 billion a year. So you, you want to make certain that you're providing great value for the money they pay us for the, uh, for the co-brand. Uh, I'm, I'm pleased to say that while we have made changes and some people have benefited from those changes, other people have been uh, harmed, quote-unquote, from the, from the changes, uh, one of the goals we had was to create more accessibility and, and value for for, uh, for consumers in terms of being able to provide uh, almost on a blackout-free basis access to award inventory. Uh, our, our awards are up year over year, our free tickets, and the cost of redemptions are down 10%. So I think it's a, uh, it's a story that clearly when people see change happen for something that's been as stable as it is for some, listen, our, our program is called Sky Miles. Right, and um, but miles are no longer the, the so it was even embedded in the name. Um, so, but change is hard, and we respect that. The last thing I want our frequent travelers to do is think that we don't appreciate their loyalty, and we're we're working hard to find ways that we can continue to enhance their loyalty. And I've I've tasked our loyalty team. I I think we may have been pushed a lot of change over a short period of time that we need to now reflect on and see if there's things that we could we could we could tweak. Uh, you certainly haven't been shy over the past uh, few years. When I say you, I'm uh, certainly including uh, public statements by, by, by Richard um, about doing some things that uh, you know maybe didn't follow the code of, of the old days. About talking about you know competitors' operations in very specific ways. You know when you ended the interline with American, talking about uh, uh, you know how Delta was taking a lot more of their reaccommodated passengers than than uh, they were taking Deltas. Uh, you dropped out of A4A, the Industry Trade Association. You were talking about. Uh, what you pay for airplanes in a very specific way that clearly ruffled Boeing's feathers and so forth. Um, 
when I go these days to industry conferences, you just talk to people from competitors, uh, uh, suppliers, other partners, airports, there is universal uh, recognition of and respect for what Delta has accomplished financially and, and operationally. Um, but some of those same people say, you know, do they have to be so arrogant about it? You know, I, I, I just wonder, is, is there any risk in that uh, to, uh, to, to being as proud as, as you legitimately are of, of what you've accomplished, uh, but as publicly proud? I, I don't think there's any risk to being proud of what your employees are delivering, and that's and that's fundamental to what you know, sits underneath a lot of that, a lot of that uh, rhetoric, as some might say. Uh, we have gone, and we are going down a different path, and we call it the road less traveled. We get criticized, you know, many times for for a lot of these uh, a lot of these paths we've taken. You know, you you remember the uh, all the critique about the purchase of a refinery. You remember the. The questions that people have raised when we bought Virgin Atlantic that was losing a hundred million dollars. I mean, so, so you need to uh, be willing to, to take the heat when you uh, when you when you embark on a different path. Um, I'm not going to speak to what our public image around change necessarily is, but I'll tell you the the, the maverick style of pushing um, and changing the. Uh, the, the, the nature of how this business has always operated is, is going to continue uh, with me. And, um, you know, with, this is an industry that needs to continue to be uh, changed. It needs continued vitality and fresh life added to it. And, you know, it's a business that, that is, sits in a volatile spot in the, uh, in the global political climate. And we've got to be agile and we've got to make change and not, not afraid to take the heat if something, something wrong happens. Did you ever, when you were starting off your career at Pricewaterhouse and then at Pepsi and even joining Delta as, as a controller back in 1998, in your wildest dreams, imagine that you would be sitting here as, as CEO of what no, that, uh, may soon be, that, again, the world's largest airline by revenue? That, uh, that wasn't in my, uh, in my, uh, in my DNA or wasn't, it wasn't something that I, I, I tell the story. I've spoken at a few college graduations and I, I tell the story to the kids that, you know, you really have to... You follow your dreams when you graduate and decide where you're going to embark upon, but also be open to opportunities that present themselves. Uh, when I graduated from college, I never even stepped foot on an airplane. I, my first time I was on an airplane, I was 25 years old. So how would I have known right, that this was, this was uh, going to be in my future? Um, so, but, it's, but, but yeah, I, I have thought a lot about it in the last five years, and I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited about the, 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 the team and excited about you know, just the incredible performance that we are posting on all levels. And I'm excited about the challenge to try to improve it, too. Ed, congratulations again, and thanks for your time. Thanks, Seth. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. That was Seth Kaplan with Ed Bastian, the new CEO of Delta Airlines. Seth mentioned his interview with American CEO Doug Parker from a few months ago. If you're interested in hearing that, it's lounge episode number 19, and you can find it at airlineweekly.com. Also, Seth has a book on Delta titled Glory, Lost and Found, How Delta Climbed from Despair to Dominance in the Post-9-11 Era. Search Delta Book on Amazon, and it will be the first thing that comes up. We'll be back in the lounge next week as we return to our usual format. Until then, for Seth Kaplan, I'm Jason Cottrell. Thanks for joining us.